The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast which may contain content which is explicit and graphic in nature and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. December 19, 1990, from the desk of Leroy K. New. Sylvia Likens was senselessly murdered. Children as young as 10 years old participated. The world asked why. There was no adult supervision. Human civilized values did not exist in that household. There was no adult limitation on behavior. There was no human love. The result, animal instincts surfaced. Mob action surged to hurt the quiet one, the weakling who was outnumbered, frayed. Dogs display the instinct when harmless sheep run from them and the dogs are in a pack. Protesters demonstrate it by overturning cars, breaking windows, looting stores. The lesson from all this, each of us have the capacity for good or evil. Reason and common sense is often overcome by emotion, fear, hate, greed, revenge. Yet the victim, all too often, is totally innocent. So it was with Sylvia. Each of us has one life to live. How shall we live it? Without order in society, we revert. Human values dissolve. We then dehumanize others. We invent excuses for hating. We reach back into medieval times and assert leadership over others we believe will submit to mistreatment. We eventually see the senselessness of it, but often too late. We forget all we have learned from our ancestors and it is oh so painful. Concern for others, love for our fellow man, sensitivity to every human being on earth, caring, sharing. These are the landmarks of a good life. So children, life goes quickly. Like the flower we bloom oh so beautifully, but soon we fade. We are cut down and we are no more. While you are here on earth, set a high goal. Accept goodness as a reward in itself. Above all, be good to yourself. Wasting your life on poisons is shameful, non-productive. The children who murdered Sylvia chose evil. Their mother chose evil. All their lives were ruined, wasted. Learning this one lesson from Sylvia Likens and her death will not have been in vain. She speaks today louder from her grave than she ever did when she was being tortured and approaching death at age 16. All I did was write out that thing on her stomach, and then I hit her about 10 or 15 times. But how come? <laughs> well, most because Gertie told me to. Hoover then spoke to one of the Banachevsky children, who told him how the victim was treated. She refused food. We tried to get her soup every once in a while, and stuff like that, and she wouldn't take it. Well, how about these scratch marks on her stomach? Who put them on her? I did. Why? Well, Gertie just thought of it. She said, since you branded us, we're going to brand you, so... She itched in with a pen, and I went over it. She showed me how to do it, and then I went over it. I, I did it. Did you ever use any hot irons on her? No. Yeah, I, that three in her stomach, I did half of that. Mm. And Shirley Ann did the other half. Where'd the S come from? What do you mean? There's a big S branded on her stomach, right? That's what, one of her breath. Huh? that's what I'm talking about. Well, that's what you're talking about. Well, how about the inscription on there, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Who put that on? I did. Did you scratch it on there, paint it on there? How'd you do it? Well, like I said before, Gertie wrote it down there with a pen, and I did the rest. Mm -hmm. She showed me how to do it. And had Gertie abused this girl? Yeah. Gertrude Banachevsky, however, had a different story. I did never beat that girl. Never. She was beat up on by other girls. In fact, my own daughter stopped in the jaw and broke her wrist. And uh, so, I mean, there you go. And, and, and girls around the neighborhood beat her up, bloodied her nose. I, one girl broke her nose, in fact, I think. Were you ever in contact with the police on any of these occasions? Well, in the last two weeks, uh, in fact, um, uh, I think if, if you talk to my daughters, I'd ask them that uh, the, the children's father and I are divorced. And he's a policeman in Leechcover was. And uh, I've asked the girls repeatedly, call their dad, ask them what to do. And in fact, I, I asked Jenny, I said, Jenny, and, and I told Sylvia, I said, Sylvia, I'm going to have to call the police or somebody because I can't have any responsibility. But the police were called only one time. And according to Hobb... Well, she, uh, she, I come in and about, she come up from the basement and we noticed she's cold and everything, so we carried her upstairs. 
give her a warm bath and artificial respiration. When, well, she stopped breathing. See, we gave her a warm bath, and then she stopped breathing. And so I gave her artificial respiration for about 10 minutes. And then uh, I went and called the police. By the time police found the girl, she had been dead some 8 to 12 hours. Thank you for joining us for part two of episode number five, the torture murder of Sylvia Likens. This episode, we're going to talk about the trial and the aftermath of her murder. On the evening of October 26, 1965, the sound of the telephone ring interrupted the peaceful sleep of Lester and Betty Likens. They had been doing well at the carnival and planned on returning to Indiana that following week. They had earned enough money to buy their own stand for their return to Florida and were excited about the prospective business. However, the caller on the other end of the line was one of their neighbors, giving them bad news. They informed the couple that their middle daughter, Sylvia, had been murdered. Immediately, they collected their things and headed straight for the airport. They arrived the next day, and upon reading Jenny's signed statement, Lester broke down into tears. On Friday, October 29th, Reverend Lewis Gibson told the crowd of mourners at the Russell and Hitch funeral home, we all have our time, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during her last days of her life. After the incredibly emotional ceremony, mourners rode to Oak Hill Cemetery to pay their final respects before her body was interred. She was buried near the bottom of a small incline near a large tree, her simple headstone bearing her name and the small epitaph, Our Darling Daughter. This was a murder that shocked Indianapolis. What seemed to shock detectives and attorneys even more was the lack of remorse each of the accused had shown. Every single one of the children told them the same thing. Gertie made me do it. So what we have here are children who are holding on to pent-up hostility, which was then taken out on Sylvia for the slightest thing as she was the best scapegoat. And the only authority in the house was permitting this. So it was adult sanctioned abuse. And the way it was justified was through rumor and hearsay. What kills me is that she handed over the administration of corporal punishment to children barely older than Sylvia herself, and some were even younger. Of course, they thought it was okay. Mom said it was okay. She deserved it. At least she's not beating me. Not once in any of these statements did any of these kids say that, that they thought the punishments were overboard or were inappropriate for the accused crime supposedly committed. Gertrude, as expected, blamed the children. She said that she had been sick and had been taking drugs, which were prescription pills, and she'd been laying in bed. She claimed that she only saw Sylvia three times in October, and she couldn't possibly have laid a hand on her because she was a weak asthmatic. She told Sergeant Kaiser that she knew the kids had been mistreating Sylvia and admitted that she had made Sylvia sleep in the basement only three times because she wet the bed. To which Kaiser said, isn't the reason she wet the bed because you injured her kidneys when you hit her in the back with that paddle? But of course, she knew nothing about that. She admitted to making Johnny go get shit for her to eat, for Sylvia to eat. But the one she really threw under the bus was her second in command, Paula. She told the cops everything her daughter had done to Sylvia. And then she turned on Coy Hubbard, telling them that, she, that he did a lot of the beatings too. Now, Jenny was questioned first, and then they came for Ricky Hobbs. At first, he went along with everything that Gertrude had said, but ended up telling the truth after being told that Jenny had implicated him in the crime. What's interesting and somewhat sad about Ricky's involvement is that shortly before Sylvia's death, Ricky's mother had been admitted into the hospital as she was suffering from cancer. Ricky was allowed to go see her, but they took great pains to make sure that she didn't know that he was in custody. Uh, nearly two weeks after Sylvia died, so did Miss Hobbs. And he was allowed to go to her funeral, but was accompanied by police officers to make sure he didn't escape. Ricky was transferred to Marion County General Hospital after they found out that he was di a diabetic. And in an ironic twist, 
was handcuffed to his bed until the end of his trial seven months later. The Banaszewski children, I'm sorry, I'm learn, I've learned that it's Banaszewski. I keep saying Banaszewski. The Banaszewski's children were taken to the juvenile center and held as material witnesses. Around 3 p.m. the following day, police squad, car, police squad cars pulled up to Howe High School and took Coy Hubbard into custody. Before his mother could arrive and talk to her son, he started singing. He admitted to hitting Sylvia, but he didn't know why. He said that he flipped her onto the floor for something she said about Stephanie and that he burned her with matches and that the previous week he had held Sylvia's hands behind her back before shoving her down uh, the basement steps. Paula admitting ad Paula admitted to beating her but said that in three months she only hit Sylvia on the butt with the police belt 25 times. When I read this, the first thing that came to mind was how people tend to sidestep certain facts. I think it, it doesn't mean that Paula gave her 25 whacks at the same time. I think she hit her with that belt on at least 25 separate occasions. She admitted to breaking her wrist, hitting Sylvia in the jaw, but emphatically denied being pregnant. Johnny admitted to spanking Sylvia to burning her with matches and said that Gertrude burned her with cigarettes. He also gave a list of names of the children involved which included Paula, Stephanie, Marie, Shirley, Beneshevsky, Anna Sisko, Judy Duke, Darlene McGuire, Randy Lepper, Mike Monroe, Coy Hubbard, and Richard Hobbs. Now, if you notice in the statements that they give, they tend to minimize their involvement. They're like, well, I only did this and I only did that. And you heard uh, Ricky Hobbs in the beginning of the episode say, well, I only hit her like 10 or 15 times. Like it was no big deal. I only hit her a couple times. <laughs> 10 or 15 times. I wanted to hit him after I heard that. Like, you stupid kid. Most of the time, the courthouse seats were empty while court was in session. But when this bunch was brought into court on November 1st, 1965, uh, for the grand jury testimony, the defendants had to stand in line outside the courthouse because they had quite the audience. A an attorney made the comment that if some of these people were as concerned about Sylvia before, she would probably still be alive today. That day, Judge Zachlin ordered that Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, Johnny, and Richard Hobbs be held without bond on murder charges. Hubbard's case was continued until November 24th. Anna Sisko, Judy Duke, Randy Lepper, and Mike Monroe were held at the juvenile center on charges of delinquency. The grand jury came back with their indictments of first-degree murder. A conviction of first-degree murder in the state of Indiana carried uh, a sentence of death by electric chair or life imprisonment, and no woman or child has ever been sentenced with first-degree murder at that time. But they brought these uh, indictments against Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, Johnny, Coy Hubbard, and Ricky Hobbs, but no charges were brought against Anna, Judy, Randy, or Mike. Marie, Shirley, and Jimmy Ban Banaszewski were placed in separate foster homes. So each defendant had their own attorney. John R. Hammond represented Stephanie and filed a motion with the state saying that they had no evidence to support murder charges against her. He also contended that it was illegal for them to hold her as, as she would be deprived of her schooling. The judge in the case, uh, Judge Rabb, asked her how she liked school, to which she said if it were a man, she'd marry it. She was transferred to the juvenile center so she could still attend school. She ended up waiving her right to immunity from prosecution and testifying before the grand jury. Hammond was the Banaszewski family attorney, but he would soon start dealing his clients out to other lawyers to assist with the case because it was such a large case. William Urbecker was Gertrude's attorney. In almost all of the cross-examinations, he kept deferring to the witness to answer to Gertrude's state of mind, whether she was sane or not, or if her actions were the person uh, of someone in their sound mind. Paula's attorney would be George Rice. Ricky Hobbs' attorney was James Nedef. Forrest Bowman Jr. represented both Coy Hubbard and Johnny Banaszewski. Banaszewski. Huh. All five lawyers kept the judge busy with motions and legal filings and, get, and kept getting things pushed back. That's the hardest part, I think, when it pertains to a crime like this. The wheels of justice move slow because the law becomes a game that everyone is fighting like hell to win. They picked out the grammar of the indictment. They argued that some of the defendants were far too young for a felony conviction punishable by death. The judge was having none of it, however. They tried to get their clients released, stating that during the habeas corpus 
habeas corpus proceedings, the state had no right to hold defendants in jail without sufficient evidence to produce a strong presumption of guilt. Really, he just wanted to see what the evidence was uh, that they had against Gertrude. Gertrude, at the time, was getting glammed up while she was in jail. She would come to court wearing a bouffant-style hairdo, but by the next appearance, her hair was back to its scraggly self. A reporter with the Indianapolis Star found out that she was trading services for hairstyling in exchange for knitting for several of the matrons in the jail. This was considered trafficking with inmates, and this reporter's article put an end to it quickly. Because none of their motions for dismissal were granted, some of the lawyers went on to the insanity defense. Forrest Bowman Jr. tried to introduce a, quote, slum condition defense, stating that those who live in slum conditions were made more volatile by their impoverished lifestyle. Paulus attorney George Rice tried to say that he didn't believe she understood the nature of the offense in which she was charged and had no ability to actively participate in her defense. Now, at first glance, this looks like he's calling her a fucking idiot, but what he's doing is trying to set up the insanity defense by trying to meet the two conditions um, required for the state of Indiana. So Urbeck also submitted his, his, quote, suggestion of insanity for Gertrude. By the time the case went to trial, all defendants had filed these suggestions, but all were found to be mentally sound at the time of the examination at the time of the crime. Now, the two conditions have to be met if arguing for the insanity defense. If the court decides that the defendant doesn't comprehend the nature of the charge or is mentally unable to assist the attorney in their own defense, the person can be declared incompetent and then committed to a mental hospital until judged competent again. The second condition is sanity at the time of the crime, meaning the defendant didn't understand the nature of his or her actions at the time of the crime and did not have sufficient power or willpower to control said actions. In both conditions, the judge must appoint physicians to examine the defendants, then they must testify in court as to their findings. The judge ordered Gertrude to be taken to Marion County General Hospital for examination and also sent Paula for the same reason, but also to await childbirth. She can no longer deny that she was pregnant at this point. She gave birth on January 13th, 10 days after what would have been Sylvia's 17th birthday to a baby girl whom she named Gertrude and was subsequently placed in foster care. I don't think she ever got to see that baby more than a few minutes and then she was whisked away. The doctor who examined Paula found her mentally sound but immature, has a hysterical type of personality and was emotionally deprived but mentally competent. She told her doctor that she didn't hurt Sylvia and she presented the, she presented the situation as one where Sylvia had become withdrawn, negative in behavior to the point where she refused to eat and showed no response to pain. She also said she didn't believe Sylvia's condition was very serious before she died. It's a lot of people living in denial. The prosecuting attorney, Leroy New, had a reputation for being cutthroat and had hardly ever lost a case. The defense attorneys began filing motions for separate trials for each defendant. Their premise for this was that it would prejudice the it would yeah prejudice the jury against each defendant, therefore not receiving a fair trial. The judge explained that the law of Indiana required that when defendants act in concert to commit a crime, they needed to be to have a joint trial. But this was also an unprecedented case. Rarely had so many defendants been tried together on a charge of murder, and never had they had to try. Uh, had trial that involved five children. It was argued that the law does not require separate trials and that it was under the discretion of the judge and the circumstances of the case required a joint trial. The judge nor jury could get a full picture if only one person's part was told and evidence against others would be inadmissible according to Mr. New. It would be hard to prove that what any one person did would have resulted in her death, but all their actions together made a case for murder. The judge agreed and denied the motions. Undeterred, the attorneys then try, uh, decided to try to get the case taken out of the jurisdiction. Had they done this earlier, it may have been granted as Indiana law requires the court to grant a change of venue from the county if filed within a specific limit of time. After that limit, it is discretionary, meaning that the judge could approve or deny it at will. So again, he denied it. Hammond tried to get a change of judge after an argument between the judge and attorney Ferdinand Samper, who was filling in for Forrest Bowman, who was on vacation, had occurred. 
Uh, prosecutor New pointed out that Samper was only substituting for Bowman and that he had also attended the same session and witnessed no hostility between either men. This motion, too, was denied. All these motions filed by five different attorneys caused a huge delay in the start of the trial. Urbecker was insistent that they needed to change a venue and took it to the Supreme Court, who denied to overrule Judge Rapp's decision, stating that publicly, or that, I'm sorry, stating that publicity on the case was widespread and taking the case elsewhere wouldn't change anything. Finally, the trial date was set for uh, April 18th with jury selection. Press was allowed in, but no pictures or video was to be taken while the jury was present in the courtroom. All defendants pled not guilty. Two days before the start of the trial, Prosecutor New announced that he would seek the death penalty for all defendants. Even after the start of the trial, motions kept being filed. It was, it was kind of crazy. Uh, Judge Rabb denied Mo uh, Bowman's motion for a four-week continuance, so he, went, so he asked the Supreme Court to force Rabb to grant the continuance. It was turned down, but delayed the trial for four hours. The jury selection was slow moving, but it, made but it was made worse by Urbecker, who questioned the first juror for 45 minutes and the second for 20. With each juror, he read a long-winded statement detailing Gertrude's plea of insanity and would do this with each witness at the trial. It grated on the, prosecutor on the prosecutor's nerves and knew complained that Urbecker was wasting the court's time with repeated questions all along the same line. Urbecker asked if he were being restricted, to which the judge said no. He knew Urbecker was trying to lead him into an error on which he could appeal. What ended up happening was that Judge Rapp ended up dismissing the charges against Stephanie with Prosecutor News backing because there was no state, there was no evidence saying that Stephanie had participated in the abuse or hurt Sylvia in any way. She would be retained as a state's witness. So once the trial commenced and we got all the, the jurors who uh, selected who were going to participate, there was a lot of hubbub between that two because all the lawyers, of course, had to agree on each of the jurors. First to testify once the actual trial commenced were the police officers who arrived at the scene that evening, which included Officer Melvin Dixon, Paul Harmon, and William Kaiser, who read statements given at the scene by the defendants. Urbecker kept questioning the police officers about whether or not Gertrude was read her rights which it was stated several times that at the time of the questioning, she was not under arrest, nor was she suspected of having anything to do with contributing to Sylvia's death. He also kept asking the same questions about her, her sanity. With every sentence uttered, each defense attorney would raise objections, stating that search warrants should have been executed, but again, no one was under arrest at the time that the officers arrived on the scene. Bowman put Johnny on the stand to state his name and address to prove that it was his house that the patrolman had entered illegally. But the point was made that they were called to the scene and asked to enter the home and did not need a warrant at the time. Again, Urbecker asked the opinion of Gertrude's sanity to the police officers and was told that they found her sane. The coroner, Arthur Kebble, I think it's Kebble, testified that, he, that when he arrived at the house on... 3850 East New York Street that the body of Sylvia Likens was already in rigor, meaning that the body was completely stiff and did not bend at the joints. He observed that her face had multiple contusions, cuts, and burns, as well as an injury to the right side of her head at her temple. He noticed that she had burns and scald marks all over her body, which he felt, based on what he had seen in the past, was caused by either extremely hot water or some, some sort of cleaning acid. He also felt that because none of the wounds were oozing that the body had been washed after she died and her hair was still damp. He estimated that the time of death was 8 to 12 hours previously, and this would be the case in most cases, but if a body was in shock, it could develop rigor rather rapidly. In this case, because she experienced so much trauma, they feel that it sped up the rigor as well. In his court testimony, he described how badly abused her body was. Of the multiple cigarette burns, the contusions to her body, the branding on her stomach, and the estimate, and he estimated that she had over 150 marks on her body in various stages of healing, indicating that not all the wounds were fresh and could have been inflicted over several weeks. He found that the external vagina was swollen and ecmotic, and that means that, that there was hemorrhaging in the tissue, but he found no serious lacerations or indications of sexual uh, manipulation. He felt that this was from repeated kicks to her groin area. He found that her lips were deeply lacerated, an indication of a person suffering severe pain, like she was chewing on her lips. 
it was his determination that she died of traumatic shock secondary to a subdural hematoma. Hematoma. Though she was severely malnourished, he didn't believe it contributed to her death. And in his words, now this is very contrary to the articles that would be that would be published later. He said she did not look like somebody from a concentration camp. The articles would go on to say that she did. He was asked if he spoke with Gertrude Banaszewski at the time, uh, to which she said yes. He noticed that she had a black eye, but couldn't remember what her explanation for it was. He asked her why she didn't call a doctor or police when she saw the lesions that the girl had. She told him that they were trying to treat them with alcohol, but he didn't see any, any indication that medication had been used on any of the wounds. He also found her to be sane. He also testified that Ricky Hobbs seemed to be everywhere at the scene and did a lot of talking. He did say that he was a source of great information, though. He said he paid him no mind until he uh, asked him who he was and why he was there. The boy responded that he was a, a neighbor and a friend of Gertie's. Mr. Erbecker, at the end of his cross-examination of the coroner, tried to get him to say that she was insane or not in her right mind. Dr. Kebble could not make that determination based on his very limited contact with her on the evening of October 26. He told Mr. Erbecker that at the time of his examination, he was under no impression that the abuse Sylvia suffered was a result of the actions of anyone in the household. He said, quote, you must recall, Mr. Erbecker, at the time I saw the body, I had no way of connecting any of the defendants with what I saw. As a matter of when I left the house that night, I still had no idea anybody in this courtroom would be here today accused of this crime. Based on what I saw, I thought it was the work of a madman. He did say, however, that based strictly on what he saw and the photos observed at autopsy, he felt that only a person completely out of contact with reality could be capable of inflicting that kind of agony on another human being. Dr. Charles Ellis, a pathologist with the county morgue, testified about his autopsy findings. He found the same as Dr. Keppel, severe malnutrition, wounds varying in age, black eyes that were more than a day old, scrapes and lesions all over the surface of her body. And he said that her lips were markedly torn and basically in shreds. The only place where the lips were not shredded was directly under where the right tooth would have been. The laceration of the lower lip went from the outer surface to the inner surface and completely through in some areas, which indicated that she was in an incredible amount of pain. He found skin on her face and body denuded, which means the top layer or the superficial layer of skin was missing. He proceeded to use a chart to show the wounds on her body using different colors like purple for bruises, red for loss of skin by burning or cutting, and green where there's an injury. But, difficult, but those were difficult in determining which method was used to cause it. By the time he finished, the entire body on the chart was marked up and marred. He testified that her genitalia were severely swollen, almost closing the vaginal cavity, and that this would have been caused by sev several severe or repeated kicks, but, no, but found no damage to her internally. Her entire body showed evidence of burns and skin loss in various areas. Her fingernails were all bent backwards and broken, indicating strong scratching or clawing. She had some sort of greasy material underneath her nails, but it was not definitively identified. Personally, I think this was some kind of oil on the basement stairs or maybe on the wall or something, maybe on the floor, some kind of oil uh, from the house. He found that when he opened up the body that the liver was of normal weight, but it was more yellow than it should have been on the inside and outside, which indicates a fatty liver, but it's also indicative of malnutrition. Other than weight loss, he found no other signs of malnutrition and all other organs uh, were normal except for the brain. Upon examination of the brain, he found a large bruise on the left side. After removing the skull cap, he found around two tablespoons of fresh blood. He also said that he found a shifting in the brain tissue, a narrowing in the cavities of the brain caused by an increased intracranial pressure from a subdural hematoma and felt that it happened two to three days prior to death. The autopsy was performed at 10.17 p.m. and it was his determination that she died approximately seven hours prior, putting her time to death around 3 to 4 p.m., which was around the time that Ricky Hobbs had stopped by the first time that day. He felt that the cause of her death was increased intracranial pressure due to brain contusion with shock from burns, laceration, and malnutrition as underlying and contributing factors. Again, Mr. Erbecker began his lengthy summary of events 
and asked the same sort of question he had asked of Dr. Kebble. He asked whether or not, in his opinion, if he felt Gertrude was sane or insane. At this, the attorneys began to argue. Several objections were raised. They kept trying to get the judge to declare mistrials based on their clients not receiving fair trials, but were overruled. The judge sent the jury back uh, out of the room so that Dr. Ellis and Mr. Urbecker could have a private conversation. After the jury came back in, no matter how the question was phrased, it was constantly objected, then sustained by the judge. Eventually, Urbecker stopped his charade and arrested his cross-examination of the state's witness. Mr. Nedef, the attorney for Richard Hobbs, asked Dr. Ellis if not for the subdural hematoma, would she have survived her other injuries? Dr. Ellis stated that it was possible, but he couldn't say for certain. Photographs of Sylvia at autopsy were passed down the line of defense attorneys in case of possible objections. When they neared Jenny, she covered her eyes, and when they began to argue over the introduction of pictures, she began to weep. She was led out of the courtroom. They would continue to ask Dr. Ellis if the blow to her head was caused by a fist or a broom handle, as it would absolve Coy Hubbard of having caused the fatal blow. It could have been caused by a fist, a shove down the stairs, a judo chop, or a Coke bottle, said Dr. Ellis. Lester Likens was next to the stand. <laughs> After telling the court that Gertrude was the one who insisted on taking care of his kids, prosecutor knew wanted him to identify Sylvia via pictures. Now you have to understand, too, that him saying that Gertrude was the one who said, hey, let me take care of your kids, you have to understand, too, that this would absolve Lester of looking like a negligent parent. However, given the fact that Gertrude was a was a known liar and kept waffling on the stand saying, no, I said this, no, I said this, no, I said this. You can't really believe her either, so it's more likely what Lester is saying is true. Um, so what Prosecutor New was doing in trying to get him to identify Sylvia in these pictures was trying to elicit a a re yeah, sorry, an emotional response from the jury, but Bowman wasn't having any of it. He objected, stating there was no reason for this charade, to which New stated that it was for legal identification of the victim. The judge ruled that one photo could be shown and it would be the least graphic of the two. When he was yet again met with objections, New stated that, quote, a murderer cannot complain of the mess he makes just because it's gruesome. In the end, Lester did acknowledge that it was Sylvia in the photo, but only after covering his eyes and resting his face in his palm. After the state rested, the, attorney, the defense attorneys moved in for the kill. Isn't it a fact that in your moving from place to place, your family life and environment wasn't conducive to a wholesome environment, or, or I'm sorry, a wholesome, wholesome atmosphere for all of your children, was it, said, said Mr. Urbecker. Suddenly the victims were on trial. Now by using this tactic, the defense teams were trying to show that the victim invited death in some way, thereby reducing the guilt of the accused. So now it was the victim's parents on trial, but even if they were guilty of negligence, would that convince anybody that Sylvia had had death coming to her or invited it in any way? Betty was up next, but her testimony basically repeated that of her husband's. Other people were called to testify, such as the officers who took the statement of the children, and then it was the turn of Jenny Likens. The first day, she told about what happened in the house. At the end of that day, the jury took a tour of the house on New York Street. The house was dirty and devoid of furniture, but the mattress upon which Sylvie had died was still there, as were the ashes of the fire which uh, the kids had used to heat the needle that they used to brand her. The following day, Jenny finished her testimony for the state. She was asked by the state why she hadn't gone for help, and she stated, quote, I was scared. Gertrude kept beating me. I guess I just did what she said, and I wish I didn't. When the defense took over for cross-examination, they went for the throat. Urbecker tried to say that Jenny was coached by prosecutors on what to say during testimony. When asked if she hated Gertrude, she said, I sure do. He asked if she would do anything to see her found guilty, and Jenny said yes, so long as it was true. See, she didn't need to make up anything to put Gertrude in prison. The truth was plenty gruesome enough. Their tactic then became to break the girl down. They told her that she had been free to tell anybody, yet she didn't. Jenny stated that she could have, but she didn't want to die as well. Bowman was actually sympathetic to her, but only because he was trying to show that Gertrude was the main culprit. He asked her if she were afraid of Gertrude, to which she said yes. 
She said that she had been told by Gertrude that if she told anyone, the same thing would happen to her as well. See, that also tells me that she wasn't crazy. She wasn't insane. She knew exactly what she was doing because she was trying to get the other kids to shut up about it. If they talked, well, then everybody would know. She was asked why she didn't tell John Banaszewski when he came over on October 23rd. But what they didn't seem to understand or realize was that neither Jenny nor Sylvia had ever saw John. He never came into the house, so she never had the opportunity. But they tried to make it seem like their inability or unwillingness to tell anybody about what was happening was what directly led to Sylvia's death, and therefore it was their own fault. The worst part of the uh, cross-examination of Jenny was when Urbecker asked her about the party that they had thrown in California. Now, Jenny admitted to telling Gertrude about it. Urbecker asked her, or asked if they told her that it was a sex party. And Jenny said, no, we just said that it was a party, but she didn't know anything about sex. This, I firmly believe, was meant to shame her. Just one last punch from Gertrude in front of everybody, including her parents, to make her feel like the worst person in the whole world. More banner went on after testimony from various officers about statements made by the children. At one point, the attorneys argued that the reporters publishing articles in the paper should be considered buffoonery, and therefore the trial was or should be dismissed. But then again, the judge reminded them again that the jury has been instructed not to read anything that the paper has been publishing, so it doesn't matter. The next-door neighbor, Mrs. Vermillion, was the only person who had any sort of sympathy for Gertrude. She admitted that she never called the authorities about any of the goings-on at the residence until April of 1990, sorry, 1966 because a reporter had said that Hubbard was the boyfriend of Paula, not Stephanie, and she wanted to correct them. She said that she felt Gertrude was a hard-working woman and had too many kids to care for. Ten-year-old Shirley was next. She was cute and bubbly, but cried when she had to point out her mother and sister in court. She eventually told see, about seeing Hubbard ramming uh, Sylvia against the wall and smacking her. She told uh, how other atrocities were committed against Sylvia, some in which she had participated. When asked if Sylvia was a good girl, Shirley, said, Shirley said that, yeah, she was helpful and that Sylvia was always trying to help everyone in the house. When asked why she didn't say anything to anybody, she said that she didn't tell anybody because she believed that Sylvia was being punished. That's what most of the kids, if you go back and you listen to some of their testimony, they say the same thing. We just thought she was bad. We thought she was being punished. Other kids testified, but Randy Lepper in particular was flippant. He didn't seem affected by anything he'd witnessed or even done to Sylvia. When asked what she said when she was hit, he merely grinned and said that she said, Ouch! He also testified that Johnny had used the hose from Randy's house to hose Sylvia off in the basement before she died. He also said that Gertrude was a nervous person and that he knew what a nervous person looked like because his own mother was uh, had 11 children of her own, and she was like that too. The nurse who came by for the welfare check was also put to the test and essentially blamed for Sylvia's death as well. The woman, after being told that the girl wasn't living there and had run away, closed the case because she had nowhere to go from it. Because the complaint was anonymous, she had no other recourse. Gertrude's reverend testified, as well as other witnesses from the church who had heard Paula bragging about Sylvia, about hurting Sylvia, I'm sorry. After testimony from a few other people, Urbecker put Gertrude on the stand. During her testimony, she admitted that she had had a nervous breakdown when Stephanie was about a year old. Now, this reminds me of uh, women who have a lot of children and suffer postpartum depression breakdowns after each birth of the child. And this was back in the 1950s, and this wasn't even an idea that any doctors had had, you know, in their head that, oh my goodness, any woman could be suffering from this. They just thought, well, they just have to deal with it. So she stated that she was sick in bed most of the time that Sylvia was at the house, and that she never brought harm to the girl, though she admitted that she did paddle her once. She denied knowing any of the events leading up to Sylvia's death, and she said she remembered handing a note to the police that had been given to her by one of the children. Other than the fighting, she saw no mistreatment of Sylvia, though she said sometimes she would break up the fighting, but she was too weak to do anything else. Upon cross-examination, the prosecutor called her on several contradictions in her testimony between the grand jury and the trial jury. While she told the trial jury that she didn't remember being out of bed the day Sylvia died, she told the grand jury that the smell of the basement had begun gagging her, making her want to vomit. 
So she came back downstairs and saw that Sylvia's eyes were open then. When he asked her about it, she said she didn't remember what she did. She also told the trial jury that she didn't remember anything, uh, saying anything to Sylvia the day she died, but she told the grand jury that she told Sylvia to come upstairs and let them clean her up. News showed Gertrude the autopsy photo. Gertrude refused to look, saying that she had seen it before and didn't want to see it again, but she recoiled when he forced her to look at it. Why don't you want to look at this girl's body? He asked, to which she replied, I don't think anything dead is very pleasant to look at. He insisted she was lying, and she insisted that, he, that she was not. When asked if her testimony and signed statements and those of the children contained lies, she said yes. When asked why her son would lie, she said he was probably very scared. She also said that the reverend had lied during his testimony as well. Another contradiction to her testimony was presented by New. He pointed out that she had said that she was sick in bed, but told the grand jury, I've never got to go to bed. You see, I've got children. Next, Gertrude's doctor testified that she suffered from eczema, which was causing her facial swelling and welts. He also said that she had asthma and bronchitis, which was chronic, and that he had given her Thorazine, which was a tranquilizer. He had no opinions as to her sanity, however. Another doctor, Jerome Relkin, who was a psychiatrist, testified that Gertrude was not sadistic but rather masochistic and needed to punish herself. He also testified that she was not psychotic and knew right from wrong. However, he said that he believed her when she said that she was overwhelmed with the children. He said when the children started to take over, I really believe her that she, went, that she said she really went on drugs. He said her personality was inconsistent with, some, with that of someone who would harm anyone. Prosecutor knew was trying to get Relkin to qualify on his statement that she was a masochist. He asked if Gertrude enjoyed being beaten by her mate, and the doctor said no, but that she had indulged in masochistic behavior by allowing herself to be beaten by her lover and allowing her children to take over. Relkin tried to portray her as meek and too weak to stand up for herself, but also said she was a loving woman. After calling more doctors and psychiatrists to testify, Marie was next to take the stand. When asked if she had actually seen her mother hit Sylvia, she said yes, but only when she was bad. She said she had seen her mother paddle Sylvia. She said she'd never seen her mother hit Sylvia or paddle her in September or October and that the other children were abusing her. She said her mother was sick in bed most of the time and that she was always at her side or out running to get her prescriptions from the doctors. She said that Sylvia had never slept in the basement and that she had never heard her mother tell the others to hurt Sylvia. Boo was never denied to Sylvia. Several attorneys were upset by this, as they didn't expect that little Marie would be called as a, as a defense witness, nor had they known that Urbecker and Gertrude had had a private conversation with Marie the day before. During Marie's testimony, Gertrude stared at her, nodding yes or no after each question, and that was noticed by a deputy and reported. It pissed Hammond off because Urbecker was asking Levy questions, basically just affirming with the girl her mother's testimony. Urbecker complained that he was denied permission to talk to Marie, and Hammond reported that he had advised Marie not to have any more private conversations with her mother's lawyer. Urbecker asked the judge for permission to consult the witness, stating that they had, admitted, they had omitted some questions, but New said no. He, was, he objected and said that they had reason to believe that she had been persuaded by Urbecker and her mother to lie. The judge ruled that it would be out of order for him to allow Urbecker to talk to Marie now. Suddenly, Gertrude slumped in her chair and made a big deal out of, it, out, out of it, and everybody rushed to her side. A doctor was called, but the trial would commence until his arrival. New began his cross-examination, cross and Marie started to cry. She said that it was because she was nervous. When asked if she had seen her mother hit Sylvia, she denied it. New brought out the thick paddle that Gertrude had used and asked if she'd hit her with the paddle, and she said no. When asked about the branding incident, she said that she had seen Shirley heating the, heating the needle and that her mother was nowhere around. He called her on it and said, Now, Marie, you're not telling the truth, are you? She said that she was, but when con confronted with conflicting testimony, she broke down. New said that Shirley had said that Marie was the one that lit the paper and then watched. After saying, God help me, she admitted that she indeed heated the needle and that she had been given the matches by her mother. She then said that she did see her mother burn Sylvia and hit her with a belt. When asked about Sylvia being hosed off in the basement with a garden hose and the detergent, she said that her mom was on it, 
or was in on it because Sylvia was unclean and they needed to cleanse her. She said Gertrude was there for the judo flips and that she would just sit there and crochet and watch and that she, she had seen Gertrude hold Sylvia's head under scalding hot water. But because of the flip-flopping and admitted lying, it may have discredited Marie, discredited Marie as a witness. After the testimony of a few more witnesses, Bowman withdrew his insanity defense for both Johnny and Coy. Bowman and Rice rested their cases quickly as their clients didn't want to take the stand. George Rice had called John Banaszewski Sr. to the stand in an attempt to prove that a discipline problem might have been because of how Gertrude handled the children, but most of the objections to the questioning were sustained. He also drew out that John had witnessed uh, Gertrude hit Paula twice in the face really hard, and when he had said something about it, she told him that he would hit, she would hit their daughter any time or any way or any place that she pleased. Another purpose he served on the stand was to show... Um, was also to prove that Dennis Wright was actually 23 instead of 27, as Gertrude had stated, and that it, it kind of made her seem a sort of, some sort of siren for young men like Wright and Hobbs, because grown-ass men aren't going to find her attractive. The recreation director for the juvenile center, Helen Brand, testified that they had no issues controlling Johnny's behavior, contradicting uh, Gertrude's assertion that he was hard to control. Ricky Hobbs took the stand. He told the jury that he had become a visitor at the home sometime in July and how he had ended up etching the words on Sylvia's stomach and about the day she died. When asked if he had ever hit Sylvia, he said no. He hadn't hit her, knocked her down the stairs, tied her up, flipped her, or burned her with anything other than the needle. But he did admit to hitting her a few times during the branding, but said he didn't know why he hit her. Gertrude had told him to do it, she said. Or he said, I'm sorry. Hobbs admitted in court that Sylvia had never done anything to him and even admitted they had a casual relationship. He didn't really know Sylvia. Prosecutor knew, showed him a photograph of Sylvia, and he said that three-fourths of the bruises and markings in that photo were already on Sylvia when he put the branding on her body. So in other words, Mr. Hobbs, there were massive cuts and bruises on this body when you were branding her, is that correct? Asked Mr. New. Ricky said yes. He quaffled about whether or not Gertrude forced him to do it. He said that she'd flinched during the branding and that he was asked if he had uh, asked Sylvia if the branding hurt, which he said no. Like, he didn't even ask her. He said he hit her with the back of his hands a few times, but she didn't beg him to stop. New asked him point blank, As a matter of fact, you don't care, do you, Mr. Hobbs? Ricky said that at this time he did, but at the time that the branding happened, he felt no remorse or pity. That's a classic sign of a sociopath. If if you don't feel any remorse at the time that you're doing the crime, but you do now because of the trouble you're in, sociopath. He denied being at the house on the 25th, but figured that Sylvia would be gone by the next day because Gertrude had talked about getting rid of her the night before. And that's when he they were going to dump her in the middle of the woods somewhere. He denied having sexual relationships with Gertrude. He said that he had not seen Gertrude forcing Sylvia to eat excrement. He also said that he didn't remember talking to reporter Bob Hoover. Now, Bob Hoover was the gentleman who was conducting the interview at the beginning of this episode. Hoover appeared in the courtroom and knew put him in front of the boy, and still he did not remember. Hoover testified that he spoke to Hobbs a few days before the murder, but there was no mention of urine or excrement. A few more character witnesses for Hobbs was called just to testify to the character of the boy. None of them could say that he was anything less but a, than a good kid. They all said that he came from a, a really respectable Christian home. More witnesses were recalled to clarify testimony, including Stephanie. She would indicate that Hobbs had dropped Sylvia's head on the stair steps when they carried her up that evening, but said it could have been an accident. She said that she spoke to her mother in the jail room about being a witness for the state, to which Gertrude said that it must mean that Stephanie didn't love her anymore. It made the girl cry on the stand. Urbaker tried to get her to crack, making it seem like she was hanging everyone else, to, out, out to, everyone else out to dry but save herself. She stated that she didn't care what happened to her, but the truth had to be told. She also said that she loved her mother, but her, her mother didn't believe it. The only person her testimony didn't affect directly was Coy Hubbard. He wasn't mentioned in any of the brutality that she described. But when asked how long he'd been her boyfriend, she replied, He said always. Testimony was winding down now. 
uh, state-appointed psychiatrist testified that they found Gertrude to be of sound mind and had never been psychotic, only nervous. She may be psychoneurotic, but not out of touch with reality. So it was around this time that Gertrude had had an asthma attack and asked the bailiff for help. When uh, Erbecker asked the doctor what he thought of the savagery inflicted on Sylvia, he said that um, it didn't mean that it was sadism and that these things can occur with a person completely in touch with reality, but admitted that Gertrude was also being vague with him and that he didn't know the whole story. Erbecker, doing what he does best, unleashed a constant barrage of the same repetitious type questioning as before. New, sick of this tactic, requested that the jury be taken out of the courtroom. Then he said that this has reached the point of abuse, that Erbecker was trying to incite and try the patience of every person in the courtroom, and that he was not conducting himself in a proper manner. So eventually, as the close of the trial came around, closing arguments were stated, and the jury would deliberate for six and a half hours before reaching a verdict. In the early morning hours, the defendants were ushered into the courtroom to learn their fate. Gertrude was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to serve life in prison. Paula was guilty of second-degree murder and would be sentenced to life. Ricky, Coy, and Johnny were all guilty of manslaughter and should be in prison between 2 and 21 years in the Indiana State Reformatory. And Johnny would become the, the youngest inmate in the institution's history. The grand jury reconsidered the evidence against Stephanie and eventually let her go. Most of the people thought it was a satisfactory verdict. Others felt the sentences were far too light. One woman uh, called into the court and asked what kind of crime would a person actually have to commit to get the electric chair in Indiana. Another wrote to the newspaper that she didn't agree with the jury's, the jury's decision. Um, why should they be confined at our expense to live when they had no mercy whatsoever on that poor girl? Now, one interesting fact is that this trial cost uh, roughly $4,064 in 1966, which today um, would be $32,180.61. This was just in juror fees and meals. This this doesn't include state witnesses and all this kind of extra stuff. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to spend on a trial like this when you know that these people are guilty and that they should go to prison for the rest of their lives. Now, Jenny's home life uh, was still in question. Her parents split reconciled then split again but either way schooling was going to be difficult for her so prosecutor knew ended up doing something actually really amazing he would end up basically adopting her and he bought her a new brace enrolled her in north central high school and he would take her to school every morning on his way to work she would end up saying that if she and sylvia had a family like the news to take care of them none of this would have ever happened in order for me to get this episode out to you now i'm going to have to go ahead and split this into a three-part episode I'll get the rest of the episode out this week. Sorry it's taken so long between episodes, but real life just gets in the way. Enjoy the second part. Tune in later this week for part three. Have a great day, and don't be a dick.